Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion <clears throat> stops here. Today is the 3rd of May, which means that tomorrow is May the 4th, popularly celebrated as Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you, as they say. But uh, here in this galaxy, May is the month of Mary. And we kicked off the Marian month on the 1st of May. And uh, you may know that in 1955, Pope Pius XII made May 1st the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker to celebrate St. Joseph as the patron of laborers and specifically to counter the communist celebration of May Day. And uh, I don't know if you know about this. You may be surprised to learn that the International uh, Socialist Celebration of May 1st was established in 1889 in commemoration of what was called the Haymarket Affair which was a violent confrontation that took place on May the 4th in 1886 in Chicago, Illinois, of all places. So but so why celebrate it on the 1st and not on the 4th? Well, I suspect that the answer is that long before communism, uh, long before the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, long, long before our culture produced uh, Star Wars Day, Catholics traditionally celebrated May the 1st, uh, the 1st of May, in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And in fact, uh, the entire month is dedicated to her. Uh, I recall back in the year 2015, my wife Betty and I spent a week in Bavaria at a medieval monastery in Etel. And uh, there was, uh, we were there over the 1st of May, and they had planned a, a procession, a Marian procession, and and other activities that had to be called on account of rain, because it uh, rained rather torrentially that day. But uh, as a consolation, we were allowed to go into the main church of the monastery and to venerate up close a alabaster statue of Mary and the baby Jesus known as Frau von Etel, right, Our Lady of Etel, which was gifted to the monastery at its foundation by Holy Roman Emperor back in the 13th century. So it, it was quite beautiful. In England, of course, you know, the, the land of my heritage, there was a you know, it was called Mary's Dowry, and there are many, many traditions associated with May Day. And in fact, if you go back to the Middle Ages and you read the stories of King Arthur, it will talk about Queen Guinevere going a-maying, which is where you go out to gather flowers that are then woven into a garland and presented uh, to the Virgin, you know, by placing them on a statue. And this is the, the um, custom of what we call a May crowning. Uh, my wife Betty tells me that when she was a schoolgirl at their Catholic school, uh, each year one uh, girl was chosen to place the garland of flowers on, you know, the, the, the floral crown on the statue of the Blessed Virgin. And uh, we homeschooled our kids, of course. And I remember one year we arranged to have some other homeschooling families come. We have at our home a, uh, there's a, a stone grotto with a five-foot-tall statue of Our Lady of Grace. And we had uh, the other homeschoolers come and bring their kids and sing hymns and so forth. And we had a priest come, and we did a traditional May crowning right there at home. But a lot of these Marian traditions have, have kind of fallen out of use or fallen away in the years since Vatican II. In fact, um, some folks apparently had the impression that Vatican II discouraged Marian devotion. Uh, Terry Barber 
tells me that as a young man in the 1970s, people looked at him cross-eyed when they saw him praying the rosary in the church. And, and that people, I mean, people he didn't even know, you know, would, would approach him and remonstrate him, you know, and telling him, oh, that, that's the rosary, that's a prayer for old women. Or, or they would uh, hit him with the ever-popular, hey man, that went out with Vatican II. And actually, of course, this is nonsense. Vatican II did nothing to discourage Marian devotion. In fact, chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium, which is the dogmatic constitution on the church uh, from Vatican II, is dedicated to the Blessed Virgin and presents her as the, the model disciple, uh, sorry, model disciple as mother and model of the church. And uh, Paul VI himself uh, actually wrote two encyclicals about devotion to Mary generally and to the rosary in particular. So, you know, it, it, like I say, it's nonsense to say that uh, the rosary or Marian devotion was ever discouraged by the church. However, that said, like all virtues, Marian devotion is on a mean between two extremes, you know, which means that you can sin against the virtue of Marian devotion in two ways. First off, by having no devotion to her at all, and that would be a sin of defect because Mary is certainly entitled to a great deal of devotion. Uh, Vatican II rightly places her as highest in heaven after the persons of the Trinity. In fact, it can be rightly said that all persons are either uh, above the Blessed Virgin or below her. Uh, that is, you know, the persons of the Trinity would be the only persons that are above the Blessed Virgin, and all other human beings and, and angels as well are beneath her. So to have no devotion to Mary at all is a sin of defect. But there's another extreme, which would be to, to practice Marian devotion superstitiously, or to place Mary virtually on the level of the divine, right? To, to attribute uh, a divine nature to Mary that would grant her equality with God violates the revealed truth about the humanity of Mary, that however exalted she is, however great her virtues, however powerful her intercession, Mary remains a human being and a creature of God. And when we pray to her, we're not asking her to answer our prayers as if she were divine, as if she were God. Rather, we're asking for her intercession with God. Pray for us sinners, we say in each Hail Mary. So it would be a sin of excess to attribute divine power to the Blessed Virgin Mary. So what did Vatican II say? That as the sinless Virgin Mother of God, Mary is entitled to a great deal of uh, devotion. She's the model of the church in the same sense in which the church is called to be without stain, holy and blameless, as St. Paul says in Ephesians 5. And, and therefore it's appropriate for God to predestine Mary to pattern his ideal for the church by preserving her mirac uh, you know, miraculously immaculate and unstained by uh, original sin and even personal sin. Remember in the Garden of Eden after the fall, God said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall crush your head, it says, referring to the woman's offspring or seed. Uh, this is Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, because the Christian tradition logically understands the woman's offspring is Christ, and, and who else but Christ, by the redemption, would crush the head of the serpent. And if this offspring of the woman is Christ, then the woman must be Mary. Now, in, in the Douay Reims, following the Latin Vulgate, it says, she shall crush thy head. So, so why the difference? Why the ambiguity? Well, <clears throat> Maimonides, uh, who was a, a Jewish scholar of the Middle Ages, actually contended that it is properly, she shall crush thy head in the Hebrew. 
the ambiguity comes from the fact that the pronoun is feminine, but the verb to crush is masculine. Because, you know, I mean, virtue is, uh, and, and, you know, virtues are typically rendered in the masculine gender in those languages that, that have gender. And, and then he, you know, compared this prediction to, say, you know, Judith, or you know the, the the heroines of the Old Testament that oftentimes you know that uh, that she is feminine, but her actions like when when uh, she nails Holofernes head to the to the floor with a tent stake is rendered in, in the masculine. Um, and it's interesting that the New American Bible, um, the latest revision of the New American Bible, is a compromise. It says they shall crush thy head, and you shall lie in wait for their heel. So why? Because we know that they cooperate. You know, that we know that uh, that Christ crushes the head of the serpent by his death and resurrection. And that but Mary, though, is instrumental. There there, there would be no redemption uh, if, if she had not said yes to the angel Gabriel. Right? She is co-redemptrix. Remember, no Mary, no Jesus. So, so uh, you know, even though the pronoun is singular, it's, you know, it can be understood as uh, applying both to Mary and to our good Lord. But this this promised enmity between Satan and Mary reveals an uncompromising opposition between the father of sin and the woman who is full of grace and therefore without sin. As the divinely designated enemy of Satan, the woman would have to be one who has never been under his dominion, either by original sin or even personal sin, in order to be a fitting tabernacle for God incarnate and to bring him forth to redeem you know, our sinful world. Christ's victory surely would have been a hollow one if his suffering and then glorified body, the very instrument of our redemption, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, had been taken from a mother who had been subject to the enemy. Right? Christ would not derive his sinless body from a mother's body that had been even slightly contaminated by sin. And, and those are just a few of the many and various insights that the Holy Spirit delivered to the Church in that kind of gradual unfolding of Mariology that's developed through the centuries but always based on divine revelation and always under the guidance of the magisterium. So the theological insights I just mentioned are just the tip of the iceberg and drawn from only one Marian privilege, uh, namely her immaculate conception. Suffice it to say that Mary is the model of the church, and we should thank God for all the graces and privilege that uh, she received from him for us to enjoy and admire. As she sang in the Magnificat, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> she prophesied that all generations would call her blessed, and our generation is no exception. God has done great things for us by doing such great things for Mary, who, according to the poet Wordsworth, is our tainted nature's solitary boast. You know, once a, a lady asked me if it was possible to, to love Mary too much, and I said, let me ask you a question. Is it possible for you to love Mary as much as Jesus did? And she said, well, no, that's impossible. And so I said, well, then it's impossible for you to love Mary too much. Just remember that Mary is God's masterpiece. And so by giving honor to her, we're honoring the divine artist who fashioned her. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk about um, a, a bombshell from our Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI back in 2019 and what it means for the church today. So stick with us. We'll be right back after this message.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, we were just talking about May the 1st being the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, but I might mention that the day before, April 30th, is the feast day of another saint who is also particularly relevant for our times, and that's Pope St. Pius V. Pius V was the pope who declared St. Thomas Aquinas a doctor of the church. Pius V was the pope who marshaled the Holy League to defend Christendom from Muslim invasion in the 16th century. He was also a great promoter of the Holy Rosary. In fact, he ensured the miraculous victory of the Holy League at the famous Battle of Lepanto precisely by launching a rosary crusade to inspire the faithful to beg the intercession of the Blessed Virgin for triumph over the enemies of Christ. Uh, Pius V was the pope after the Council of Trent and the one who carried out the council's desire to restore the liturgy to the, quote, relative simplicity of the fathers. And this restored missal was promulgated in 1570 with his famous document, Quo Primum. Pius V made the Roman Missal mandatory throughout the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church, with the exception of those localities or groups who used a missal more than 200 years old. So by restricting uh, these optional missals to those that were in use before 1370, Pius ensured that the Mass would be free from any heresies that influenced the Protestant Reformation. And as you know, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, this form of the Mass has remained essentially unchanged for 400 years until the imposition of the Novus Ordo Mise in 1970. And of course, uh, the, the traditional Mass or the uh, became widely known as the Tridentine Mass after Tridentum for Trent was itself a, a, a restoration of and a continuation of the Mass that had remained essentially unchanged since the seventh century reforms of Pope St. Gregory the Great. Uh, today, we most often refer to it as the extraordinary form or simply the traditional Latin Mass. But, you know, all, all of the arguments to, to the contrary notwithstanding, the traditional Mass was never abrogated. Uh, and, and in fact, I would argue cannot be because of the language of co primum. And, and so the use of that last edition of that missal, the one um, promulgated by John the 23rd in 1962, was permitted without limitation for private celebration of the Mass, always. In July 2007, uh, Benedict XVI renamed the traditional Mass the Extraordinary Form and uh, al allowed its liberal use for, for uh, to be celebrated in public. Right, this this provided by the Moda Proprio Samorum Pontificum. Now, as as you may also know, in July of 2021, just a couple of years ago, Pope Francis issued yet another Moda Proprio, Traditionis Custodes, which attempts to abrogate Samorum Pontificum and reinstate the restrictions on the celebration of the 1962 Missal. Now, for what is probably the first time since I've been Catholic, I'm pleased to say that a papal encyclical or papal motu proprio has not been met with docility by many bishops around the world, because even after Traditionis Custodes, many bishops around the world still permit the traditional Latin mass to be celebrated in their diocesan parish churches, um, even though the, the um, document says that is to cease, and, and they cite uh, their rights under canon law as a bishop to govern the, tradition, or the liturgy in their own diocese. Now, just this Sunday, after the Extraordinary Form Mass at my parish church, <clears throat> pardon me, a friend asked me after Mass if I'd heard that there's a new document banning the traditional Mass uh, going to come out later this month. <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> and I said, no, I've, I have not heard about such a document, but 
according to Traditionis uh, Custodis, we shouldn't be uh, assisting at the Mass at our own parish right now. So I refused to worry about it. In fact, uh, it provided an occasion to recall that last year, on the 1st of May, 2022, the Feast of Pope Pius V was celebrated in the extraordinary form at the parish church of all parish churches, the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And it was a cause of joy just to remember it. And that's no nonsense. <coughs> oh, I apologize. I got a uh, dry spot in my throat here. Anyway, I mentioned before the break that I wanted to revisit a bombshell document that was written by then Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI in April of 2019. We've just passed the fourth anniversary of his essay called The Church and the Scandal of Sexual Abuse. Now, a little history. <clears throat> in August of 2018, and I know that for some people it seems like a long time ago, and certainly a lot has happened since then, but in August of 2019, uh, 2018, Archbishop Vigano blew the whistle on the many abuses of now ex-Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. And in February of 2019, Pope Francis called the presidents of the World's Bishops' Conferences to the Vatican to discuss the crisis of faith in the Church uh, that's provoked by the continuing uh, shocking revelations of clerical abuse perpetrated against minors. Now, that was four years ago. And Pope Benedict was at the time the oldest living pope, albeit uh, Pope Emeritus. And although no longer directly responsible, he uh, he put in his powerful two cents with this essay like uh, that I call a bombshell, which was called The Church and the Scandal of Sexual Abuse. Incredibly, it was largely overlooked and consequently unheeded. Now, I covered it in 2019 uh, when I was doing my show Happy Hour, my daily show. And then after it had been virtually ignored for 18 months by the Catholic commentariat, both left and right, I looked at it again in some detail on an early episode of this program, No Nonsense Catholic. And, you know, I wonder, here it is uh, four years later, it continues to go unheeded, while the moral confusion that the Pope addressed in this document continues to worsen, I, I would say, seemingly day by day. And, and the, you know, the point is that the Clerical abuse scandal is really an effect of a larger movement whose, whose far-reaching effects are not only still being felt, but uh, currently seem to be, you know, careening out of control. And so I really, uh, you know, at first I wondered why it is that nobody was paying attention to what the Pope had to say, Benedict XVI. And, you know, it occurred to me that uh, it doesn't fit neatly into the narrative either of the, you know, the, the reactionaries on the, on the far right, you know, the, the hardcore traditionalists, or the progressives on the left, right? For, it doesn't help the right's message because it doesn't, you know, expressly blame Vatican II for every problem in the church. And, of course, the progressives are, are absolutely, uh, you know, 100% committed to the sexual revolution and all of its ramifications, including but not limited to, you know, gay marriage and, and transgenderism. Now, I have to say that, you know, being a, a traditional Catholic, there's nothing in this essay is something that I'd never heard said before, but never had I seen it presented so systematically and, and never so honestly, and certainly never by somebody so highly placed or, or highly respected as Pope Benedict. You know, like I say, it's not a new message. Our Lady of Good Success prophesied the, the crisis of faith and morals in the church today 400 years ago. 
she said that 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 immorality would spread through the world like a filthy ocean that touches everything. She said the crisis of faith and morals would be would be undeniable uh, after the midpoint of the 20th century. And when you think about that, I mean, the first half of the 20th century was no bargain. <laughs> you know, worldwide depression, the, the Great Depression, not one but two world wars. What happened in the second half, you know, that that would be worse than that? Well, I was there, and I remember it very well, and, and we, we refer to it colloquially as the 60s. But, you know, what we think of as the 60s, the hippies, the drugs, the sexual, sexual revolution, even Vatican II and its aftermath, really started in earnest in the United States in the so-called Summer of Love back in 1967. And, and it hit Europe a year later in what the Europeans called the Revolution of 68. So in reality, what we think of when we say the 60s spills over into the 70s as well. Sexual revolution, social upheaval, rejection of authority, breakdown of traditional values in the family, widespread acceptance of hardcore pornography, easy divorce, followed by uh, you know contraception, legal abortion, now even euthanasia and, and, and transgenderism. You know, Pope Benedict says in, in the 20 years from 1960 to 1980, the previously normative standards regarding sexual sexuality collapsed entirely. And he talks about a little bit about sex education and how that revolution affected the young. Part of the physiognomy of the revolution of 68, he says, was that pedophilia was then also diagnosed as allowed and appropriate. In other words, psychologically speaking, you know, pedophilia was no longer to be considered a mental illness, but just one more item on the sexual smorgasbord. He said for the young people in the church, but not only for them, this was in many ways a very difficult time. I have always wondered how young people in this situation could approach the priesthood and accept it with all its ramifications. The extensive collapse of the next generation of priests in those years and the very high number of laicizations were a consequence of all these developments, right? Tens of thousands of priests abandoned their vocation after 1965. Between 1965 and, and the turn of the 21st century, there was a 94% decrease in uh, seminarians in the United States. Now, so far, <clears throat> he's not saying anything that we don't really already know. But then he drops the bomb. He says, and I quote, at the same time, independently of this development, Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against these changes in society. I will try to outline briefly the trajectory of this development. Now, here again, something we don't ever hear from the higher echelons of the church, especially because he names the elephant in the room. He said, until the Second Vatican Council, Catholic moral theology was largely founded on natural law, while sacred scripture was only cited for background or substantiation. In the council's struggle for a new understanding of revelation, the natural law option was largely abandoned, and a moral theology based entirely on the Bible was demanded. This is a staggering admission. The council was struggling for a new understanding of revelation? I mean, which begs the question, why? Who said there was any need for a new understanding of revelation? But it addresses something that I had long wondered about, what, what Lucia Fatima called diabolical disorientation. Namely, 
how can Catholic theologians, highly educated, many of them even highly educated priests and bishops, how can they be confused about basic moral issues? And here, Pope Benedict puts his finger right on it and then presses down. Moral theology in the church collapsed after the council because in the council's quote-unquote struggle for a new understanding of revelation, theologians abandoned the natural law as the foundation of moral theology. According to Benedict XVI, Catholic moral theology suffered a collapse that rendered the church defenseless against these changes in society, that is, widespread acceptance of homosexuality, easy divorce, contraception, abortion, etc. And if not the collapse, at least the lowering of defenses was intentional. It explains a lot. You know, in the Summa, Thomas Aquinas quotes from the scriptures and the fathers, but he doesn't scruple to turn for insight to Aristotle or Maimonides or Avicenna, quoting Christians, pagans, and Jews, even Muslims, when they expounded the truth. And that's the Middle Ages. And what that means for us, I'm going to talk about when we come back right after this. So stay with us on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Before the uh, break, I dropped the bombshell of Benedict XVI that he said that between 1960 and 1980, Catholic theologians abandoned the natural law and uh, as, as a foundation of moral theology. And as a consequence, Catholic moral theology collapsed and the church was not, was therefore rendered defenseless against the sexual revolution. And then I mentioned right, be, right before the break that uh, in, in the Summa, in the Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas not only quotes from the Scripture and the Fathers, you know, the Christian sources, but pagans and Jews and even Muslims when they expounded the truth. And, and this is centuries before Vatican II said the Church doesn't reject anything good and true in other religions, because Aquinas already knew, as we should all know, and as the Vatican Council confirmed, <clears throat> that all truth comes from God that all truth has its ultimate source in God, because God is truth. And that truth is expressed universally in the natural law, which is written on the human heart and can be apprehended by anyone of goodwill. Now, Pope Benedict goes on to explain that morality cannot be expressed systematically from the Bible alone. Wow. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, is not sufficient? <laughs> Gosh, who would have thought? You know, I did you know that Protestant seminaries don't even teach moral theology? Were, were you aware of that? See, I, I remember years ago having a conversation with uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. I don't even remember. It was some point of, of moral theology. I don't remember what the conversation was about. But I remember asking him, well, what did, what did you learn about it as a Protestant seminarian? He went to Gordon-Conwell uh, Seminary, one of the most conservative, one of the most respected Protestant seminaries in the country. And he said, uh, we they, they didn't teach moral theology. And I, and, I, and I thought, how is that possible? Well, the answer is pretty simple. If you embrace Luther's heresy of once saved, always saved, if you think that, oh, I'm saved now, so so my sins are all covered, and, and, and my sins can't send me to hell, why would you need moral theology? And according to Benedict XVI, in the end, he said it was chiefly the hypothesis that morality— was to be exclusively determined by the purposes of human action that prevailed. 
prevailed, that is, amongst the progressive Catholic theologians, you understand. And he goes on, while the old phrase, the end justifies the means, was not confirmed in this crude form, its way of thinking had become definitive. Consequently, there could no longer be anything that constituted an absolute good any more than anything fundamentally evil. There could only be relative value judgments. There no longer was the absolute good, but only the relatively better, contingent on the moment and on circumstances. That's, that's what replaced the natural law. Did you hear that? Is this microphone on? This is Pope Benedict XVI when he was Pope Emeritus. He was erstwhile prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, that is, the, the former High Inquisitor of the, of the Holy Office, der Panzer Cardinal, God's Rottweiler, etc., etc., just said the definitive thinking of Catholic moral theologians today is the end justifies the means. Call it situation ethics, call it morality exclusively determined by the purposes of human action, call it relative value judgments contingent on the circumstances of the moment, call it whatever you want, but what it is, is a formal break with the tradition of the church on the part of Catholic theologians regarding morality. And Benedict went on to cite the smoking gun, the, the Cologne Declaration of 1989, signed by some 15 Catholic professors of theology, complaining about the tension between, quote, the Episcopal Magisterium and the task of theology. In the end, he says, the hypothesis that the Magisterium of the Church should have final competence, that is, infallibility, only in matters concerning the faith itself gained widespread acceptance. In this view, questions concerning morality should not fall within the scope of infallible decisions of the Magisterium of the Church, unquote. So, you can't do theology today and be loyal to the Magisterium, because the Pope or an ecumenical council in union with him is not and cannot be infallible in matters of morality, but only in matters of faith alone. This, of course, that, that's the secular progressive ideal, that religious faith is entirely a private affair. Religion is between you and your God. So worship whatever you want, believe what you please, just realize that religion doesn't have any right to speak definitively about morality about the way people behave and the way they live. Just admit there's no moral absolutes, which explains a lot. You know, it's pretty handy if you want to be a, a cardinal and also a sexual predator like Mr. McCarrick. But is this even remotely legitimate Catholic theology? Is it not just a, a rather transparent rationalization for sin? You know, what they're saying is that, quote-unquote, value judgments or relative and contingent on present circumstances. Therefore, the magisterium cannot speak infallibly on matters of morality. Faith, yes. Morality, no. Unfortunately, that's a distinction without a difference. The faith is about salvation from sin, and sin is about morality. You can't get around it. But Catholic moral theologians are saying that in order to do theology, they can't be hampered by the definitive teaching of the one true church of Jesus Christ, because there's no moral absolutes which is to say there's no absolute right or wrong. Think about this. The age of reason, about seven or eight years old, is defined by the ability to distinguish right from wrong. Being able to make that distinction is the measure of normal intelligence. So when a Catholic moral theologian says there is no right or wrong, that is, to paraphrase Alice von Hildebrand, it's proof that you can... 
<clears throat> pardon me, you can have a PhD in theology, and yet, according to the classical definition, be an idiot. <clears throat> now, it's one thing for me to say that, but for Pope Benedict, uh, for Joseph Ratzinger, who was at the time arguably the greatest living biblical theologian, it's quite incredible. And if I hadn't read it myself, I, I, I probably wouldn't have believed it. Now, of course, Pope Benedict is famous for his insistence on the hermeneutic of continuity, that we must interpret the Second Vatican Council in light of the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded it, and that we do not reinterpret the Church's tradition in light of Vatican II, much less in the light of pop psychology or the sexual revolution, for heaven's sake. And so he says explicitly, Pope John Paul II knew very well the situation of moral theology and followed it closely, and he commissioned a work on an encyclical that would set these things right again. It was published under the title Veritatis Splendor, The Splendor of Truth, on August 6, 1993, and it triggered vehement backlashes on the part of moral theologians. Even before Veritatis Splendor, he said, the Catechism of the Catholic Church had already persuasively uh, presented in a systematic fashion morality as proclaimed by the church. He says, you know, John Paul II knew that he had to leave no doubt about the fact that the moral calculus involved in balancing goods must respect a final limit, that there are goods that are never subject to trade-offs. That's his words. So in other words, there, there are things that are not negotiable. He said there are values which must never be abandoned for a greater value and even surpass the preservation of physical life. There is martyrdom. God is about more than mere physical survival. The life that would be bought by the denial of God is a life based on a final lie, is a non-life. Let's hear that again. There are values which must never be abandoned for a greater value and even surpass the preservation of life. Benedict calls martyrdom a basic category of Christian existence. It's what our Lord himself said in Mark uh, chapter 8, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For he that shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him when he shall come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Hence, Benedict reminds us, there is a minimum set of morals which is indissolubly linked to the foundational principle of faith and which must be defended if faith is not to be reduced to a theory, but rather to be recognized in its claim to concrete life. Now, he goes on to talk about how that's not a new problem, but that, and I'm quoting, the long-prepared and ongoing process of dissolution of the Christian concept of morality was marked by an unprecedented radicalism in the 1960s. So it had been going on for a long time already, but it, it in the 1960s is, is where it became uh, radicalized in an unprecedented way. He says the dissolution of the moral teaching authority of the church necessarily had to have an effect on diverse areas of the church. In various seminaries, homosexual cliques were established, which acted more or less openly and significantly changed the climate in the seminaries. Okay, here's where he's getting around to what happened in the church. He mentions how, quote, the criteria for the selection and appointment of bishops 
had also been changed after the Second Vatican Council. Above all, a criterion for the appointment of new bishops was now their conciliarity. Indeed, in many parts of the church, conciliar attitudes were understood to mean having a critical or negative attitude towards the hitherto existing tradition, which was now to be replaced by a new radically open relationship with the world. Wait, what? So being conciliar means having uh, taking a defiant posture against sacred tradition? In the aftermath of Vatican II, only those priests who were critical of tradition were made bishops? Well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? Traditional Catholics have made that claim for decades, and, and the apologists have shut them down. But remember, this is not me talking. It's Pope Benedict XVI. And he goes on, there were, not only in the United States of America— so clearly everybody acknowledges that we have a problem. He says, but there were, not only in the United States, individual bishops who rejected the Catholic tradition as a whole and sought to bring out a new kind of modern Catholicity in their diocese. Perhaps it is worth mentioning that not in not a few seminaries, students caught reading my books were considered unsuitable for the priesthood. Spoke Benedict talking, my books were hidden away like bad literature and only read under the desk. Listen, rejecting tradition is a sin against the fourth commandment. It's a collective sin of impiety. It is the sin best summed up in the words, non servium, I will not serve. We'll sum up when we come back. And uh, if we have time, talk a little bit about a medieval saint who uh, helps to show us what to do in these circumstances. All that and more when we return for No Nonsense Catholic. Right after Thanks for listening to a no-nonsense Catholic, Matthew Arnold here, to, to, to sum up everything we've been talking about. Do you want to know how Catholic theologians can flaunt the teaching of Christ and his church? How Catholic seminaries can be overtaken by homosexual cliques? How a notorious sexual predator can become a, a cardinal? How popular Catholic priests can openly support the, uh, the LGBTQ and get promoted to a position in the Vatican? How, how bishops can openly support pro-abortion politicians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Benedict XVI says this is how. By Catholic theologians imbibing a deadly cocktail made of one part non-servium, which is the primordial sin, one part sola scriptura, which is the most harmful heresy of the last five centuries, and one part the end justifies the means, which is the most pernicious philosophical error of all time. Mix that liberally with uh, a, the diabolical lie that there's no right or wrong, and therefore no eternal consequences for sin. Because if my sins won't send me to hell, then everything, everything is allowable. And this has been going on for decades, while the Catholic apologists have been rearranging the deck, chair, deck chairs on the Titanic. Now, Benedict XVI goes on to talk about more. It's just too much to unpack here. We were almost already almost out of time. <clears throat> but the one the last thing deserves our attention. And that's how Pope Benedict reflects on the words of Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, he points out that in context, Jesus isn't talking about pedophilia. He says the phrase, the little ones, in the language of Jesus, means the common believers who can be confounded in their faith by the intellectual arrogance of those who think they're clever. 
So here, Jesus protects the deposit of faith with an emphatic threat of punishment to those who do it harm, unquote. So what does it say about a bishop who doesn't take that threat seriously? What does it say about his faith? More importantly, what is the way forward? Now, for the better part of the current pontificate, uh, Catholics, even you know, conservative Catholics, have been calling for more Reformation, which I think it is, is plainly evident that is precisely what got us into this mess in the first place. And Pope Benedict admits this when he asks rhetorically, what must, we, what must be done? Perhaps we should create another church for things to work out. Well, that experiment has already been undertaken and has already failed. You see the problem. It really is time to stop talking about the conciliar church, to, to see Vatican II for what it really is, and to get back to the deposit of faith. And when I say see Vatican II for what it really is, I mean that it's not a break with tradition. That it needs to be understood within the context of the whole history of the church. Look, I said this last week on the Terry and Jesse show. Uh, I said it on my show, rather, last week. I said it on the Terry and Jesse show on Monday. I'm going to say it again. God became a human being to die for your sins, to save you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He, he, on the cross, he gave us the Blessed Virgin Mary to be our mother and our model. He established the Catholic Church so that the graces won on the Holy Cross could be communicated to the world through the sacraments that he himself established. Is that not enough? Christ gave the promise of indefectibility to his church, not to those who think they have a better idea. You know, what we need is not reformation, but restoration. And the good news is Our Lady herself promised a marvelous restoration of the church. And when I say that's good news, I'm speaking in the context of the good news, the gospel. The whole of the redemptive work of Christ, the whole of Christianity, is a restoration project. Jesus came to die for our sins in order to restore our relationship with God the Father, which was broken in the Garden of Eden by the sin of our first parents. Anyone who tells you different is tragically mistaken or worse, motivated, motivated by the desire to justify their own sins. The demand of modern Catholic theologians for freedom from the magisterium in matters of morality is really a call for license, or the license to sin. That is the fatal flaw of all so-called reformation. To reform means to change. To reform means to, to remake. <clears throat> and if you would reform the church, in whose image shall you remake it? Protestants had to abandon moral theology altogether to justify their so-called reformation. And the modernist reformers among the Catholic theologians today have had to embrace the moral bankruptcy of the end justifies the means. But the end doesn't justify the means. Sin doesn't ever lead to happiness. It certainly never leads to holiness. As I said before, what we need is not reformation, but restoration. So what does Pope Benedict say should be the proper response to the issues that he raised in this essay? In his own words, only Obedience and love for our Lord Jesus Christ can point the way. Learning to love God is therefore the path of human redemption, a paramount task which must result from the moral upheavals of our time is that we ourselves once again begin to live by God and unto him. Above all, we ourselves must learn again to recognize God as the foundation of our life instead of leaving him aside. 
It's that simple. Of course, as any martyr will tell you, simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. Quite the opposite. That's why we need the sacraments that Jesus established to give us God's grace. Um, <clears throat> I recall reading the book of Judges, how, how I was struck by the recurring insight that the heroes of the Old Testament understood the utter futility of human effort apart from the power and the guidance of God. And as Christians, we know that the Spirit of God is available to all people, that anyone dedicated to God can be used in his service, but that without him, we can do nothing. And it's interesting how, I mean, despite the best efforts of, of the judges in the Old Testament, that the, the chosen people would not turn wholeheartedly to God. You know, uh, uh, Judge 17.6 sums it up in the words, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. See, every man was a law unto himself. With what consequence? First, the spiritual decline of the nation, followed by the political and economic decline. It's impossible to escape the parallel in the church and the world today. You know, sometimes when I read the Old Testament, I ask myself, why did the chosen people keep turning to idols? I mean, they, they're the chosen people. They're the only people in the world at that time in right relationship to the true God. And yet they keep forsaking him. Why? Well, we should ask ourselves the same thing. Why would Catholic theologians abandon moral theology? Why would they abandon the natural law? Why would liberal Americans abandon the foundational values that made our country such a success that even today, people from all over the world are literally dying to get in? It's, again, it's simple. <clears throat> Just like the ancient idolatries, our modern idolatries of identity politics and, and sexual license offer rewards to those who will compromise their faith. Jumping onto that rainbow alphabet bandwagon of, you know, LGBTQ, et cetera, transgenderism, you know, insert current nonsense here, offers acceptance, which people crave. And it's the key to money and popularity and power and influence, all well and good in the short term. <laughs> Look what happened to Budweiser. But, but in the long term, you know, it, it's worse than that. Rebellion against God always leads to disaster. The book of Judges reminds us that God uses defeat to bring wandering hearts back to him. For so many of us, it's only when everything else is stripped away that we recognize the importance of serving God. So not surprisingly, Pope Benedict had it right. As always, we must identify the idols in our hearts, renounce them, and turn back to God for his love and mercy. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities and all is vanity, except, as Thomas Akempis reminds us in the Invitation of Christ, all is vanity except to serve God and him only. And that's no nonsense. Well, how about that? We wound up with a quote from the Middle Ages. That's <laughs> not a surprise around here. Uh, speaking of the Middle Ages, I wanted to to uh, actually share in this segment a bit about a certain medieval saint and how she combated the nonsense of her day, I'm talking about St. Catherine of Siena. You know, everybody knows that uh, she was a Dominican nun, except she actually wasn't. St. Catherine was a Dominican tertiary, that is, she was a third-order Dominican. She didn't live in the cloister, she lived in the world. And as a lay person who had not taken vows of religion, she was free to travel and take an active part in the events of her day, which she did. You know, she entered the uh, third order at 16, 
uh, lived in solitude in, in a cell in her family home for a number of years and then uh, um, dedicated her life to the service of the poor and the sick in her hometown of Siena. But then ultimately, her reputation for wisdom and holiness uh, made her advice sought after by church leaders and civil leaders and ultimately even the pope. You know, the other thing, you know, that's the other thing everybody knows about St. Catherine of Siena, that she played a decisive role in ending the Avignon papacy by convincing Pope Gregory XI to leave France and return to Rome. And, and she was made a, a doctor of the church by Paul VI in 1970, at which time she became the first and to date the only lay person ever to be made a doctor of the church. All the others are either clergy or professed religious. So she is a model for lay Catholics of all ages, but especially our own. And, you know, and I say that especially because with the publication of uh, Apostolicum Axiositatum in 1965, the decree on the apostle of the laity, Vatican II, for the first time in the history of history, produced a conciliar document, document exclusively dedicated to the apostolate of laity. And we're told that the role of the Catholic laity is to sanctify the secular order, that is, to make the world outside the four walls of the church more holy. But since you obviously can't give what you don't have, Catholic lay people must first strive to grow in holiness ourselves. And it was for her holiness and the depth of teaching that proceeded from it that St. Catherine was made a doctor of the church. And she gives us a powerful example of the role that the laity can have in solving the current crisis of the church. I'd like to end with a short prayer uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen. O God, you caused St. Catherine to shine with divine love in the contemplation of the Lord's passion and in the service of your church. Through her intercession, grant that your people, united in the mystery of Christ, may ever exult in the revelation of his glory. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, folks, uh, we've managed to make it through another one. Next week, I hope to speak about another document, one that was produced by a synod of bishops under Saint, uh, Pope St. John Paul II. I often ask the question, what, you know, when is the Church going to give us the definitive guide of how to interpret Vatican II? That's what's needed. Well, guess what? It happened in 1985. And uh, although it's been ignored, I'm going to share it with you next week uh, when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic. In the meantime, thank you so very much for listening. As always, thank you for your prayers and for your financial support. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.